Welcome to Money Management. This is Mike Mail. I'm with the Spokane office of the Opus 111 Group, and we're here as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to help you uh, hopefully get a better handle on what the heck is actually going on out there. Well, we ended the month for market purposes yesterday. Uh, we had the Dow for the month up 2.9%. The S&P up six-tenths of a percent. Uh, The NASDAQ down one-and-a-half percent. And the Russell 2000 up for the eighth month in a row, which is pretty unusual for small-cap issues. But yesterday, the Dow itself closed at 34,529. The S&P at 4,204. NASDAQ at 13,748. And the Russell 2000 at 2,268. Gold settled at 1902 an ounce, silver at 26, excuse me, 2786 an ounce, crude at 67.53 a barrel, the 10-year at 1.58%, and soft white wheat at 8.12 a bushel. You know, we've got reflation, rotation, and inflation all affecting the markets right now. But uh, one of the things that happened this past week was that uh, the Dow celebrated its 125th birthday. I'm sure everyone was just having raucous parties in, as a result of that. Uh, over its 125 years, its average annual return has been 7.69 to the good side. And, uh, and the Dow and S&P have had similar trajectories over the past 30 years. And if you include dividends reinvested, each one has returned about 11% annually. Now, the thing about the Dow that's different about the S&P is is that the higher a stock's price is, the more weight it carries in the index. So, for example, United Health, excuse me, United Health Group had a recent price about 413. So that uh, accounts for 2700 points of the Dow's 34,000 at the time. Well, Apple at $126 a share was only counting for 835 points. <laughs> and with Apple having a market cap of $2.1 trillion, that's the largest in the world, uh, as opposed to $390 billion for United Health. So the S&P is more of a market weight, so Apple carries a much bigger stick, if you will, than United Healthcare in the S&P. Those are the big differences. But overall, this last week... Um, you know, investors continue to lighten up on the tech and rotate into the cyclicals. Microsoft, Alphabet, and Apple all had losses. Now, here's something I think is kind of general interest. This, according to Fidelity, in the first quarter of this year, the average 401k balance for folks, 123900 Now, of course, it has nothing to do with age or income, but that's just the average balance. The average IRA balance, $130,000. And the number of uh, at least a million dollars in retirement accounts also stood at a new all-time high. It doesn't say how many or whatever, but it's a lot. And Steve Hankey, you know Steve, he's a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins. He calculates that the average annual return on stocks between 1900 and 2017, which I think is a fairly good sample, well, the average annual return has been 11%. 
And after subtracting inflation from over that entire period, your average annual return was still 8%. Not too bad. So, you know, growth, there's this talk going on now, you know, growth versus value, which is better, which do I want to be in? Well, growth stocks outperformed in the 90s uh, during the dot-com and have performed pretty dang well over the past 10 years. On the other hand, value stocks did better after 2001 because people were looking for a greater value, excuse me, a greater, they put a greater value on dividends and, and valuations. And this, again, it's just cyclical. That's how these things work. From uh, 89, excuse me, 83 to 91, value held sway, as well as from 2001 to 2008. But again, from uh, earlier in the 70s through today, it, the other years have been kind of dominated by the growth shares. They did outperform in the 90s and done pretty dang well uh, over the past decade. Now, the Fed was semi-quiet this past week. They did say they're going to be releasing a policy statement on June 16th, followed by their usual press conference. That's something the traders are going to be all over because they want to get an idea as to what the Fed is actually thinking about the direction of interest rates and what might motivate them to change them. And you know, the, the Fed is always, well, almost always been a lagging indicator. In other words, the Fed tends to react to the economy rather than guide it. And I think that uh, today's Fed is pretty much sticking to the reactor mode as opposed to being the point guy. Few economic uh, reports. And by the way, we'll be talking, uh, I think, at length uh, about inflation and the effect on the market and your investments here shortly. Uh, as well as what the outlook for the market is on behalf of some of the seers around the country. But right now, as far as uh, reports, economic reports, this past Thursday, in front of the House Finance uh, Services Committee, Jamie Dimon and other uh, bank presidents uh, held forth being quizzed by those people. Jamie Dimon, he's uh, president of... Uh, Chase, I can't even think of it, J.C. Morgan, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, he argued that a plan to raise the U.S. tax rate on foreign profits, this is for corporation, uh, up to 21% could, over time, push firms, U.S. firms, to move their businesses back overseas. He thinks that the shift could accelerate if the allies, our allies, renege on their promises to impose a similar global minimum tax. For example, the Irish have a 12.5% tax, and they're like, no, we've been able to grow our economy quite nicely having lower tax rates. Thank you very much. Jamie went on to say, America would be the only country, I think, in the world that would have what we call a global tax rate. Again, referring to the 21% tax. There's no question in his mind, at the margin, that will drive capital and eventually brains and research and development and investment overseas, and that would be a big mistake for America. Jane Fraser, who is Citigroup's uh, CEO, uh, concurred. She added that it's very hard to get other countries to sign on to an equivalent program despite some optimism. She said, I think it will be extremely difficult, and therefore I, it would put the U.S. in a position of being less competitive around the world. I'm sorry, but once again, this simply reinforces that the current people supposedly in charge have no grasp of how economies work. 
Now, the first quarter GDP, second revision came in showing growth well, it was unchanged at 6.4%, so that's okay. Uh, it said the largest drags on real GDP growth in the first quarter remained uh, corporate inventories and net exports, but that isn't exactly bad news because the inventories fell as businesses with supply chain issues met their increased demand by lightening up on those inventories, uh, and so they have to be rebuilt. Uh, so that re sets up future growth in that particular area. And the exports fell mostly because of a surge in imports uh, because we've recovered a whole lot more quickly than some of the other uh, trading partners have. We saw personal income uh, having the biggest single-month decline in series history going back to the late 1950s, but once again, it gets the asterisk because uh, it, things were just getting back to normal after the massive stimulus checks that came out in March. So, uh, you know, looking deeper into details does show continued progress as the country continues to reopen. Now, finally, a couple uh, real estate notes. Home prices in March up 13.2% from a year ago. Um, that, according to S&P CoreLogic, it's the largest since December 2005, one of the largest in the 30-year history of the uh, index. Prices being pushed higher, no surprise. Incredibly strong competition in the market. High demand butting up against near-record low supply, so the bidding wars for the vast majority of listings. You can't even change your mind if you want. <laughs> if you're trying to buy a house, don't scratch your head. That's kind of how it is right now. It's a little silly. There were just 1.16 million homes on the market in April. That's a 20% drop year over year, according to the National Association of Realtors. I saw something interesting. It said that there's currently more realtors than there are homes for sale. So I don't know what that means, but there you are. News you can use. Just a couple more bits on real estate before we get into the inflation commentary. And it's uh, new home sales fell a little bit in April. That's the most recent period. But what's the bigger story going on is that they made downward revisions to the prior month. So it looks like sales, home sales, new home sales, have generally been decelerating since January. And even after those revisions lower, though, sales are still up uh, 18% from February 2020. I think that gives you some idea as to how strong this uh, housing market has been. One reason for the uh, recent slowdown, well, as we talked just before the break, uh, growth in prices. The median price of a new home is up 20% from a year ago, the most since the late 80s. And due to the higher cost inflation, home builders also becoming a lot more cautious about listing new builds because they don't want to do it too early and waiting deeper into the construction process to do so before making inventory available for sales so they can adjust those prices. Or and, I don't know which is appropriate, the number of single-family homes currently under construction is at the highest level since 2007. So there is a significant backlog that should keep activity running on all cylinders for the foreseeable. There, <laughs> these things tend to work out, but this is exactly a great example of a cyclical market writ large. Remember 2008 when there were too many houses? Well, here's the other end of that equation, and so now we got to... Uh, just keep on going to where we get uh, the demand coming more in line with the supply. Now, one thing I've learned in my career, and probably anybody who watches the markets for more than, I don't know, a month, the thing you have to know from the outset is that 
if you're investing in stocks, there's always going to be an apocalypse du jour, a reason for the world to end as you know it, at least according to my buddies in the financial media. You know, there will always be one particular economic, market, political thing designed by the media, designated by the media, to be hanging over our market like a big black cloud and threatening to send it into perdition. Well, when that crisis, and that word's in quotes, and in the media, it's always a crisis, fails to fire at the market, we do not then proceed to fair skies and sunny media outlook. Nay, nay, we move right on to the next apocalypse. Over the past little over a year, I think we've had four that I can readily identify. One is, of course, the plague, the virus. It was going to be the modern-day Black Plague. Boy, oh, boy, these guys were cheapers. Or at least very at least uh, 1918 revisited uh, when tens of millions of people uh, were affected by that. And, but it was nowhere near what the early models forecasted. To me, it was kind of like in the war when they told you that all the bad guys in the world were right over the hill. Well, you could sleep very soundly with that kind of intelligence. But when they told you, hey, don't worry about anything, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's when your antenna went way up. So uh, another thing, global economic devastation, oh, for sure. As a general statement, uh, the way governments around the world have chosen to deal with the pandemic was to lock everything down and that automatically put their economies into sort of a medically induced coma. And what surprised, the bottom fell out of the world economy. And we had the deepest recession since the 30s and the fastest recovery ever. And of course, we had the election, which was the most bitterly, bitterly partisan in living memory, which though as a student of history is really pretty much just variation on the theme. You go back to the Civil War period and all those, I mean, jeepers. <laughs> Some of what they said and what they did was pretty, uh, pretty aggressive. Anyway, uh, the overvaluation. Oh yes, the market had not only survived these setbacks; it now surged into new high ground. And this was held to be an indication of a generalized stock market bubble. I don't know how they come up with this, but ever since two thousand one, they've got hold of the word bubble and they use it every time they can. But stock market bubble, which would surely implode momentarily. Just ask it. Any expectations of permanently low inflation and rates? Well, those have been driving the rise in P.E. ratios. And, and as a result, the values of shares. Tech companies and precious metals producers are, however, most adversely affected by inflation. You know, refer, reversal in expectations poses a risk to them. It, the expectations of permanently low inflation and interest rates have been driving this rise in PEs. So when the direction changes, those are going to be some of the ones, as we're starting to see, that get, uh, shall we say, negative attention. Now, as we talk, people are dropping the mess. The economy is roaring back. The housing market is booming, and the stock market has come within a touch of doubling from where it was in February 2020. This is all great news, and of course it must not be allowed to stand. <laughs> Let's knock the pins out from under it.
Cue the financial media. Well, so not a moment too soon to suit our buddies, as well as the many so-called analysts who totally have missed this market. We're now being stalked by inflation. Why, so the heavy-breathing doomsayers are implying, we may not even get garden-variety inflation. We may be just going straight to hyperinflation. <laughs> well, there's always somebody that doesn't get the word, as they told us in my other job. Uh, and the yield on the 10-year Treasury, which we give out every day on the morning news, is averaged about 6% for the last 60 years until about the last 5 or 10 of them. And right now, it's hanging in between, it ranges between 1.6% and 1.7%. So apparently, the Treasury market hasn't noticed uh, the end of the world coming down on it. And now, at around 4,200, the S&P uh, hasn't gotten the word either. But... Let us not have facts confuse the story. These grumbling should never get permitted to be in the way of any media blood-curdling catastrophe in the making. You know how they say, if it bleeds, it leads, and if it isn't bleeding, I think we'll slice it so it does. Now, the Fed's been jawboning for 2% inflation for, shoot, 10 years. And now it's apparently gotten its wish, and we'll see whether it has or hasn't, so stay tuned. Clear-thinking, goal-focused, long-term investors don't make portfolio changes thinking about a phenomena you can't even predict, much less quantify or time, a.k.a. inflation. Inflation is the long, slow, inexorable grinding down of your purchasing power over time. It's precisely why you're a stock investor. What's this? That's right. Inflation is not a signal to drop stocks. It's the very reason you own them in the first place. Now stay with me and we'll go over just why that's the case. Over the long term, mainstream stocks have proven to be a most efficient hedge against inflation. Certainly not gold, as we talked last week. In the most recent Ibbotson data, which is a company that you know, you've seen these mountain charts of how the market does over time. Well, these guys are kind of the kings of that bit of business. They have data going back to 1926. And the average annual compound return of the S&P is just over 10%. In that same period, 1926 to 2020, the inflation at the Consumer Price Index has compounded at just less than 3%. So quick math, 10, 3. 10 is better. We like that. We're on the right side of the equation. So the mainstream stock investor has picked up purchasing power, which is probably the only real definition of money, at a quite a bit more than twice the rate at which inflation has tried to take it back. Jeremy Siegel, who wrote the book Stocks for the Long Run, and that's a good book for folks who are interested in learning about long-term investing, he traced the he has a seven percent premium of stock returns in excess of inflation, going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson's administration. I'd say that's a fairly significant sample. Uh, Jeremy Siegel, writing in Stocks for the Long Run, uh, determined that 
stocks have provided a 7% premium return in excess of inflation going back to Thomas Jefferson's administration. And what do you have to do to achieve this? Well, you'd have to live that long, but you know what I mean. I mean, how do, how do you achieve these kinds of results? Well, stay invested. Superior companies of the U.S. and the world have been doing it for you through the medium of their what they call pricing power. As inflation drives up their costs of material and or labor, strong companies typically pass the increases on to the consumer. Now, this isn't to suggest that consumer can just arbitrarily pass cost increases to the consumers, just, you know, flick of the switch or all at once. <laughs> no, not the case. It doesn't assure an uninterrupted rise in the prices of the company's shares either. Now, when you think about it in math terms, the value of any business is the sum of all its future cash flows, and then you discount it back to the present at some rate. Well, the latter has to do with interest rates, which ultimately respond to inflation. And that same stream of future earnings is worth a lot more in a low-rate, low-inflation environment than in a higher one. So you can see why stock prices might be pressured as inflation rises for a couple reasons. First, you've got a lag between the time companies' costs increase and the time they're able to raise prices to restore those margins. The second is an increase in the rate at which the market discounts their future earnings, cash flows, and dividends. But those, like inflation, are likely temporary in nature, and nor is there any certainty that or how or when, the market will react to them. The overwhelming evidence over long time horizons is that leading companies do have pricing power to pass on increased costs to the consumer. And good companies wage constant war against rising costs by simply becoming more productive. And innovation is what we do best here in the U.S., in our country's only real sustained episode of inflation bordering on hyperinflation, and unfortunately I was present for most of it, uh, the S&P stood at 96. That was always just 96 in 1967. Now the problem was in 1978 it was still 96. Uh, you know, inflation in 1978 topped out Okay, you ready at this? You know, we're talking about 2% and everybody's getting all heavy breathing. It, it, it hit 20% in 1978 and hung around at those levels, plus or minus a couple percent, for a few years. Not a happy time. Now, the media is suggesting that these kinds of times are hard upon us. I do not know where they get their information. But... Here's something more to the point. In the following 11 years, that is to say subsequent to 1978 when the S&P was still at 96, the market went up 15 times. That's what it does. That's how it works. In other words, you have to stay and be in the game to get their benefit. I can tell you from my own experience that those people who made serious money in the 80s and 90s were those folks who bought stocks right through the 70s, just as all the wealth that folks amassed in the last dozen years or so came from being invested in the OOs when things weren't all that exciting. Now, right now, yeah, we're feeling some degree of increased inflation pressures. Again, this appears to be due to supply chain imbalances, uh, 
the exploding economy, exploding recovering economy, and of course the massive monetary fiscal accommodation. But the supply imbalances will work themselves out. You know, in, in commodity pits, they have a phrase, the cure for high prices is high prices. Well, the cure for low prices is low prices, too. So that's just at, op, at the ends of the market runs. The economic growth, it'll eventually move back to the long-term trend, the trend line. Fed's not going to stand by and let inflation run away. <laughs> it would have no credibility at that point. And uh, these architects of the unprecedented stimulus spending, in quotes, are going to have to face the voters in 18 months anyway. So this too shall pass. In the meantime, let's keep focused on history instead of the uh, current headlines. 1960, I know this is ancient history for many of you, but the S&P was 58. Now it's above 4,200. That's up 70, seven zero times. The dividend on the S&P 500 at that time was $1.98. Right now, it's running at around $60, up 30 times. And the consumer price index, that's inflation, ended 1960 just under 30. Last month, it came in at 267. That's nine times higher. So let's see, 70, 39. Hmm. Looks like a trend in my favor. So I rest my case. Through a combination of pricing power, and our relentless innovation and serving an exploding global middle class, and oh boy, is it ever, mainstream American stocks are going to continue to function, in my opinion, as the most efficient long-term inflation hedge in human history. There is no reason, no time to be apologizing for these guys. You know, we put far more weight on sustainable long-term drivers to the economy than on government stimulus, which is, well, just borrowing spending from the future. And on that front, private sector wages and salaries went up in April. And with that rise, private sector wages and salaries are up 19.4% over the last 12 months. And remember, a year ago was the depths of the lockdown. But more importantly, they're up 5.5% in pre-lockdown. The best tailwind for our economy comes not from D.C. Ever but from the near-miraculous scientific achievements that vaccines being distributed across the country. Now, it takes getting back to normal, getting back to work, to fully recover. Stimulus has been like an opioid that hides the pain until the real healing takes place. As we get back toward normal, whatever that may mean, wages and salaries will continue to move higher alongside gains in employment. One of the major keys to... Uh, Minimize your investment risk, and whether it's whatever kind of inflation environment, hello, inflationary environment you may be in, is to be broadly diversified. You know, the key to investor risk—that's reducing risk that you're likely to make on your own as an investor—is to figure out your own weak points and biases. You know, your internal demons and enemies, pride, fear, greed, exuberance, anxiety. How do you react when things go bad or when they go good? Do you, how might I say, react inappropriately? Uh, that's why you need a strategy. You can cut down on your risk by first determining 
realistic investing objectives, and then de designing a long-term strategy, and of course, sticking with it. Sticking with the long-term strategy, not getting spooked by short-term fluctuations, by media people trying to get you to buy the toothpaste, telling you that right after we, this commercial will tell you how the world's going to end. No, you don't need to watch those people. Long-term investors care about a future stream of earnings and dividends and whether they're growing or shrinking. Short-term traders, they don't, <laughs> they don't care about that stuff. That has nothing to do with anything. All they care about is investor psychology that can swing wildly from day to day and month to month, you know, following the momentum. But both kinds of folks are needed in the markets, so that's how it goes. Now, a gentleman named Charlie Ellis uh, gave a speech in 1988, and he described three ways that you can get superior results as an investor. One, <laughs> be more brilliant than anyone else. You know, be like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. That's Warren's uh, partner. Another way to do it is just sheer brute force. Put a whole lot of physical energy into trying to beat the market by outworking the competition. Just that's all you do every day is just put your head up against a TV set and get after it. And then the third one is the mental game of mastering your own emotions. And I think that that's the biggest one because in my experience, it's not the market that causes, uh, how would I say, significant variations in results. It's how folks respond to their own situation and what actions they take or don't take. Now, there are some general things that you can talk about investing. There's three ways that as an investor, you earn interest returns, excuse me, investment returns. One is through interest, another is dividends, capital gains, or the combination of all three. Then the combination of all three is typically known as your total return because it integrates all three of those. Now, if we're talking about interest, that comes from bank savings accounts, certificates of deposit, bonds of whatever type, uh, they all generate interest. They are loans. And so you give the folks the money and they give you uh, a fixed interest payment for a period of time and then your money back. So you're going to choose these uh, when you're interested in knowing exactly how much you're going to earn uh, on a regular basis, typically monthly or annually or what have you. But it's also a way for you to set aside a specific piece of money that you need within a short term. Short term meaning two years or less. If you have, you know, a house, a car, a school, whatever, set aside a chunk of money, you want to be sure it's there, no strings, then you got to put it in fixed income because, yeah, you can get more in the market, but let's face it, you can get less too. Now, capital appreciation, investors who want their investments to grow in value, which I think are most of us, uh, typically choose investments like stocks, stock funds, and ETFs that offer that appreciation. So in addition to choosing the type of desired return, you have to identify the options that produce that kind of return and choose the investment. You must also choose the account where it's going to reside. Now, asset location is the place where your investments are held. Now, I'm not talking about under the bed or at a brokerage house or whatever. It's how income or gain, where they are held depends on how it's going to be taxed. So identifying the investments that have the potential to generate the kinds of returns you're seeking, you got to be strategic about where you're going to park them. 
you know, say you're interested in buying shares of a company you believe has significant upside potential. Okay. So if you purchase a stock in a taxable account, also known as a non-qualified account, meaning non-retirement account, and sell it for a profit, you'll get capital gains treatment on that profit. Now, to get long-term capital gains, which is the best, you have to hold it for at least 361 days. Excuse me, 366 days. <laughs> uh, a year and a day. Uh, anything less than that is considered short-term capital gains, which is basically ordinary income. So the kind of rule of thumb is, is if possible in a taxable account, you want to keep your gains long and any losses you have to take short because those will have the best tax benefit for you. Now, on the other hand, if you buy that same issue in an IRA or a 401k, 403b, what have you, the tax treatment's going to be different. Although you'll still make the profit, you won't get the favorable capital gains treatment, but all gains will stay captured within the uh, account until such time as you make a withdrawal. That's what tax deferred means. But when you take out money, however much and whenever it may be, it will be included in your ordinary taxable income at the time. Now, I guess I want to talk to you about dividends. You know, stocks, stock mutual funds, ETFs, they generate dividends. Dividends are a portion of the corporate profits that the companies choose to share with their shareholders. And it's not the same with each company. It's not even the same within each industry. So you just have to look and see what it is. There's a thing you can Google called dividend aristocrats that shows um, companies that pay dividends every year for like 20 years and have raised their dividends and so on and so on. Um, just as a, a reference point, if nothing else. Now, dividends are attractive because they're a form of current income and they do have the potential to increase. Now, they're not guaranteed, and because of that, uh, you hope to be rewarded with higher dividends uh, as well as the appreciation of the underlying security. And again, as you may recall from our prior segment, with dividends having uh, gone up 30 times since 1960, I'd say you're probably on the safe side of that particular wager. No, uh, you know, I want to talk dividends in terms of a, of, a, of a retirement because you have to treat a three-decade retirement just as much of a problem of maintaining your purchasing power as the protection of your principal. The markets aren't merciless. It's the calendar. You know, people say, I don't want to do anything right now because they're uncertain about the markets or who knows what. And they continue to sit on the cash, but they are doing something every day. They're getting one day closer to retirement and, and, and holding investments uh, because if they're sitting in cash that have basically no real return. So the decision not to decide today is still a decision. And in the long run, typically is proven to be a bad one. Now, you can do a lot toward cutting your retirement risk by determining realistic investing objectives and designing that long-term strategy we always talk about. And of course, oh, here's the catch, sticking to it. Sticking with your long-term strategy, not being spooked by short-term fluctuations, that's the hard part. That's the emotional part we're talking about. Long-term investors care about a future stream of earnings and dividends and how they're growing or shrinking. As I said a minute ago, short-term traders, they don't care about that. It's which way is the investor psychology working? 
Now, just as a guideline, whenever you look at your statement, pay attention to that line called unrealized gains. If you take away about a third of that, that would tell you about how much after-tax real money value your account has at any one point in time. That's just a guideline. But when markets are high, you know, it's pretty cool to figure out, hey, this is going to go on forever and we'll always get good returns and how much money can I make and... Yeah, well, you know, uh, short memory and complacency, you got to remember the reversion to the mean will happen at some point. But here's a question for you. When you're in retirement, or you can ask somebody who is in retirement, whenever they go to the grocery store, what's the single most important variable in your financial life? It's not going to be what the bottom line is on your brokerage statement. Because you don't bring your account values to the store, you bring your income. Don't bring no dang gold bars either. Oh, Rosar is going to look at you like you got three heads. <laughs> what are you going to give you change in? <laughs> anyway, indeed, whether your account values are going up and down in any given month, it's mostly irrelevant. The central financial issues, I think, are two. Is your income adequate to your spending needs in retirement? Is that income rising through time to offset the increases in your cost of living, a.k.a. inflation? You know, with those tests of your lifestyle sustaining income, a heavily weighted fixed income approach will not give you a lot of confidence. That's because bonds, CDs, savings accounts aren't yielding very much and haven't been for some time and don't look as if they will for some time. So your cost of living continues to go ahead uh, inflation ought to be a, uh, a pressing concern, and mainstream investment stocks have done better than that. The cash dividend of the S&P 500, to reiterate, grew from 1960 to 2020 from $1.98 to $56.70. That's an annual growth rate of 5.8%, an increase of about 29 times in your cash flow. And the consumer price index up about nine times. Now, the problem with bonds is that they don't raise their return. That's what they're called fixed income. That's the good and bad news about bonds. So focusing on dividends for long-term in income is probably advantageous to you. Well, we've come to the end of the road for this broadcast. I hope to be back next Saturday talking with you at 9 Pacific in the interim. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Remember absent friends. This is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Spokane Office of the Opus 111 Group, and I thank you for listening. Opinions, forecasts, and case studies are for illustrative purposes only and may only be relevant at the time of recording. Certain sectors in the market, such as international and emerging markets, certain fixed income, including high-yield bonds, precious metals, mid- and small company securities, have greater risks that are generally outlined in their prospectus, contract, or offering document. Any guarantees or protections offered through insurance products are subject to the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Diversification, asset allocation are no guarantees or protections against loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and there is always risk associated with investment.